welcome to Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. It has been an interesting last couple of days, and I've been prevented uh, by some of the circumstances in my life from putting a podcast out there. So that's why the first one of the week is kind of late, later than I usually put out a podcast. Uh, there will be more, though, this week. I have been under the weather for the last couple of days, and I, really since I flew in from California, I don't know what it was, but I, I think I've been fighting something. And Sunday morning, it was really bad. Like, I just did not know. If I was like, do I need to go home? Am I coming down with something? But um, I think uh, sleep deprivation uh, to some extent might have uh, had something to do with it as well. I also uh, been working uh, pretty hard on our uh, Airbnb that we have. We have a two family house and we've been renovating the top and um, we had some company this week, the first time, which is good that we are finally uh, starting to use it. And, uh, it, but it wasn't done. <laughs> so I've been kind of, uh, burning the candle, trying to get uh, things done up there. So I um, have a lot of emails, a lot of uh, issues. In fact, I got a long list of issues. We're only going to probably get to one today. I thought of contrasting the Kanye West interview with the Bart Barber interview because Kanye West was on Tucker Carlson and uh, Bart Barber was with uh, with Anderson Cooper. And, you know, Kanye, I, I listened to his interview and um, – it was the contrast would would be kind of interesting that here here they're both on major media and Kanye seems to do a little they weren't talking about the same things but Kanye seems to be uh, be a little more aggressive towards a lot more aggressive okay towards the current status quo that uh, is being kind of forced down our throats and he's his concerns I think are more in line with the concerns I have as far as the manipulation, cancel culture, control, uh, just w- what we're seeing. Even co- he, after he did the interview, I noticed on Twitter, uh, one of his tweets was flagged for some kind of anti, supposed anti-Semitic uh, undertones. And it's like, well, it, it was a tweet that you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have assumed that about the tweet. There was no reason to assume that about the tweet. But anyway, uh, so it was an interesting interview with Tucker Carlson. And the, the main point that he made that I thought was particularly interesting was he started talking about people who give like beauty advice as as handlers, as he calls them robots, I think was the word he used, that they are they're there to kind of create barriers for celebrities to tell them what to think, what not to think. He revealed that his uh, ex-wife, Kim Kardashian, had been influenced by the Clintons. And it was um, some of the things he said were just uh, things that really weren't surprising, but t- to hear him coming to those conclusions, being a billionaire in the uh, being where he's at is is fascinating that he's willing to come out and say that. It's kind of risky to say those kinds of things. And so I, I think there was some true bravery there. Bart Barber, on the other hand, I didn't see as very brave. <laughs> sure, he said that homosexuality and abortion aren't, uh, th- those aren't compatible with the Southern Baptist Convention's views, but he caved on like everything else. I, I mean, he doesn't see it as a cave, I'm sure. He he would see it as this is what I believe, and it probably is. But it he I'll, I'll put it this way: instead of I'll retract the cave remark, he went along with the re- regime narrative, the what you're supposed to believe. All right, and um, I just thought it was interesting hearing them both uh, in close proximity to one another. But uh, anyway, we're not going to talk about the Kanye stuff anymore. I'm not going to play any clips. We're just going to roll the tape of Bart Barber with Anderson Cooper and make some uh, comments about that. Before I did, though, I just wanted to make uh, a quick retraction. I don't do this much, but uh, 
I, I felt the need to do it uh, after the last video on the Axe 29 network because I made a, a statement and I know it was it was a small statement in the grand scheme. I get that. And some of you might wonder why I'm even saying anything, but I, I want to be accurate. And someone made a comment or at least showed that I wasn't accurate in a, in a certain area. And I want to acknowledge that. So I made an offhanded remark. I said that um, there, there was, let me set this up. Okay. So one of the panelists had said that if you, I'm summarizing, but if you want to go ask a black person for kind of advice, enlightenment is how he, he presented it, but it really just advice on how to navigate racial reconciliation. That's the term they were using, how to understand Christians who are black or whatever it is, that whole issue, uh, black culture in particular, then you are somehow complicit in perpetuating the myth of the magic black person who comes out like Bagger Vance and is uh, enlightens the white person. And I just, I thought this was so silly because I thought like, what is like Lucky Charms, you know, the uh, is the character on the box of cereal because that's an Irish person. Does that mean Irish people? They're going to always find the pot of gold. So you better never do business with an Irish person because it perpetuates a myth. Like it would be just as silly in my mind to start to make connections like that. But anyway, he makes this connection. And I had made an offhanded statement and it really wasn't my main point, but I had said, did, you know, Al Sharpton, didn't he say, I don't know if I phrase it as a question or a statement, but I said, didn't Al Sharpton also called, he called Barack Obama the magic black person, right? Didn't he do that? So like, what, are we going to you know dump Al Sharpton now as perpetuating this myth? And here's where I want to stand corrected. I don't have any evidence that Al Sharpton actually said that. In fact, I was a young lad at that time, but I think this is probably where I got this impression. There's a song, a parody song by Paul Shanklin, and it's Al Sharpton's voice, a parody of Al Sharpton's voice singing a song about Barack Obama and it's Brock, the magic, uh, black person, but they, they don't say black person. And it was on the Rush Limbaugh show and years ago, like a long time ago. And I heard it back then. And I think what I did in the moment that I commented on the, uh, on that last, uh, video is I, I assumed that I, I, I just, it came to my mind and I thought that there was something to it and I don't think I don't even think I don't know if the song came to my mind it was just more in the back recesses of my mind I thought Al Sharpton had said this and really what it was was I had heard a parody of Al Sharpton and I thought that Al Sharpton had said that so I want to just correct the record I have no evidence Al Sharpton actually said that the uh, comment to me on YouTube was uh, that there was a this song by Paul Shanklin and uh, whether Al Sharpton repeated it or not, uh, he doesn't know, but it was two white men who, Rush Limbaugh and, and Paul Shanklin, who devised and promoted this concept, but I guess that's a critical race theory must never be mentioned. Al Sharpton would never have done this. And so I thought, okay, well, um, let me just make sure, let me double check that. So I, I just did a little searching just to make sure that uh, th this gentleman was right, and he was. And this is what I said. I said, point well taken, uh, Monilla Silver and David Ehrenstein both promoted the idea that Barack was a magic black person. And they both have uh, black ancestry. 
So this, it, it, the term is, is and the, it being applied to Barack Obama in particular, that's where it originated. Um, and I, I said, yes, I did conflate it somehow with the parody, making fun of the concept when Paul Shanklin impersonated Al Sharpton using the term, I'll correct the record. So this is what I'm doing. I'm correcting the record right now. However, uh, this is something that Al Sharpton did say. And I thought that it was interesting. <laughs> this is from a long time. It's like from 2008. But he said this. Uh, he said, you can't be using the B word, the N word, when you have Barack Obama redefining overnight the image that black people want to have. Here's the greatest political victory in the history of black America, and the thug rappers can't come near it. They will have to change or become irrelevant. Now, here's the question I have. Have black rappers become irrelevant? No, they haven't. Um, has that defined now, the, the, the black... Uh, community now is upholding a different uh, standard of some kind because of Barack Obama. I, I don't see evidence of this, but this is what Al Sharpton said was happening. And it's and in that statement, this is the curiosity I'd have. Would that panel at the T4G, or not T4G, in the Acts 29, that panel on racial reconciliation, What if they didn't know this came from Al Sharpton and they just heard this, you know, that you know you got to get with it there's a new image in town and it's barack obama and he's more refined what would they say about would that be perpetuating the concept of a magic black person or a a, a different uh a, a, a different um image projected about you know what a black person who, who a black person should be as opposed to what you get in like hip-hop culture and that I, I'd just be curious. I think I know what they would say. Now, if they knew it was Reverend Al Sharpton, maybe they wouldn't make the remarks I think they would make. But the point being, in all this, uh, that if you watch the panel discussion and you heard the point that they were making, you're not supposed to go to a black person for enlightenment about the very topic of black culture or what black people are like. That's a no-no. So if you're not supposed to do that and you're supposed to shut up and listen what do you do? You're supposed to study, but you got to figure it out for yourself. It puts you in kind of an impossible situation. And if you do try to seek help, then you are perpetuating this myth that you're not supposed to perpetuate about this enlightened black person. This, this, uh, I think, what was the term they use now? This, uh, you know, a luminescent black person. And, you know, it's very possible that this, whole idea is like the Bagger Vance story. You know, th there is sort of a pre-modern uh, kind of idea to it that, you know, I don't know whether being black has anything to really do with that other than, you know, maybe there's some some old wisdom or something like that, that some black people kind of like you would think of like a um, I, I'm, I'm spitballing a bit here, to be honest, because I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out this concept, but kind of like, you know, old, uh, you, you heard like old wives tales or old, um, you know, remedies for things that have been lost are, you know, ancient wisdom, that kind of thing, pre-modern noble savage type wisdom. And it's been lost because of our mechanistic industrial modernity that we live in. And, but there are still those little pockets in Appalachia where you can seek this wisdom. There's still the, and there's, there's media that portrays rural areas that are white like that. Like there's some kind of, 
There's ancient bigotries, perhaps, but there's also ancient wisdom. There's uh, what, how many Hallmark movies take place in these, t you know, white towns with small town values and stuff. Is that paternalistic? Is that luminescent white people? Or no, it, we don't view it that way. Um, so, so it is possible, but it, of course, this is more of a positive spin on it that there is a narrative that exists out there that there are black people who may have access to some ancient wisdom of some kind that white people who are more industrialized and sophisticated lack. That is possible. And if that's true, that's not a slight against black people. That's the, that's the best approach I have to this. But anyway, I wanted to retract my statement on that. So, uh, Let's see, other things that I wanted to say before the podcast. <laughs> We're doing the podcast, but uh, just uh, before we get into Bart Barber, um, there, there was, uh, no, I'm not going to get into that now. We're, there'll be more podcasts coming later this week. Let's put it that way. Um, so uh, here is Bart Barber and Anderson Cooper. And I'm going to just set it up. Here's Anderson Cooper. And this is what he says before the interview with Bart Barber starts. You're about to hear. Bart Barber has a lot to say about faith, scandal, and the political extremism threatening American democracy. So this is how Anderson Cooper, who's conducting the interview, sets the whole thing up. He assumes from the beginning Southern Baptists are in the wrong. They're the bad guys. So we're going to talk to their leader and see what he thinks. Is he going to join me in condemning them or in the assumptions I have about them? Or is he going to defend them? That's really the question, I think, from the beginning is what's Bart Barber going to do? Is he going to condemn or defend? And the issues are political extremism, as you'll see. That means people who uh, would be, would think, and if evangelical, conservative evangelical polling remains true for Southern Baptists, then the most Southern Baptists would also think this. There is funny business going on during the U.S. election. And if you want to hear more of my thoughts on this, then you're going to have to download the audio version of this podcast or view it on Rumble because I can't give you everything that I want to say here on YouTube. But uh, that would be the view of some Southern Baptists, most, I would say, most Southern Baptists, if the polling that we have uh, on evangelicals remains true. And then, of course, the this abuse cover-up because the Justice Department is investigating, and this has put Southern Baptists in the wrong as well. And so we've talked enough about that. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast for any, any length of time, you know what I think about that, and that it's mostly a manufactured crisis. This, this is not something that, for, for a group as big as the Southern Baptists, you're going to have inevitably, unfortunately, because we live in a sin-cursed world, situations of abuse. You're going to have um, cover-ups even on the local level, uh, all, all the way through uh, the highest echelons uh, at times, perhaps. That's possible. But for the Southern Baptist Convention to act like they have some unique problem with this particular issue and, uh, and to hire guidepost solutions, which honestly, the report to some, it was a joke. Uh, even some of the prime uh, stories that they want to tell, the issues they want to bring up, they're just, they weren't investigated properly. And it's, and we've talked about this on the podcast, so there's no use reinventing the wheel. But uh, of course, Anderson Cooper is buying into the narrative. Of course, the Justice Department has come on in. They're investigating based off of this narrative. And so from the beginning, it's, the assumption is just that Southern Baptists are guilty. They're, they're abusers. <laughs> At least they give safe haven for abusers. They cover it up. They are uh, deniers of the truth when it comes to the 2020 election. Uh, they're political extremists, dangerous people. Let's see if Bart Barber defends them. He's their leader, right? President. Or let's see if Bart Barber 
joins Anderson Cooper in the same assumptions that cast him in a negative light. That's the real question here. And we'll see uh, how Anderson Cooper conducts this and how Bart Barber, uh, what Bart Barber does. When Bart Barber was elected SBC president in June, it was just four weeks after an independent investigation revealed that some former members of the SBC's executive committee, which oversees budget and organizational issues, had for decades ignored hundreds of credible accusations of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches and seminaries, partly to avoid being held financially liable. Now remember, from the beginning, this debate was about whether or not the Southern Baptist Convention was an institution of churches, entities, local church entities that control the rest of the hierarchy in the Southern Baptist Convention by coming together, pulling resources from missions, Christian education, etc., or is it actually a centralized body with a hierarchy in which the executive committee and entities have control over state conventions and over churches? That's really the question here. And unless you're going to change Baptist theology on the local church, the autonomous nature of the local church, then the Southern Baptist Convention, since its inception, has been an organization composed of local churches. They're the ones that make the decisions. So when the local church has a predator, let's say, or a potential predator, Whose job is it to ferret that person out? Well, you can certainly get help from other people. There's nothing wrong with that. For local churches should be sharing information, but that's not something the executive committee has ever had as one of its defined responsibilities. It's not the executive committee's job. They don't have the insurance or the, li the coverage for liability. They don't have the responsibility. They... They, they frankly are not even in a position to be able to, to make decisions for these local churches other than kicking them out if they're not in good cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention, which is a very low bar and it's a theological bar. And so, so other than that, they really have nothing that they can do about so, something like this. And if they get into the job of investigating these situations, then they have now changed the very nature, the very DNA of the Southern Baptist Convention and what it is. It's the responsibility. This is what the other side, opposite Anderson Cooper, at least, was saying, is the responsibility of local churches to get in touch with their local police, uh, to make those calls, to make sure that um, if there's a local state uh, convention or something, you know, maybe there's a little more uh, responsibility, or at least a little more uh, accountability, I should say there. But when it comes to the executive committee, that was the whole debate. Do we change the very nature of our organization? Anderson Cooper doesn't present any of that to you. It's not about being for or against abuse. We've said this so many times in this show. It's not about that. It has nothing to do with that. Of course, both sides are against abuse. They're against predators. There's no question there. But the assumption is, well, if you don't want to centralize the SBC, if you don't want to give more power to the executive committee, if you don't want lawyers to line up, waive attorney-client privilege, and uh, have lawsuits, and now have the Justice Department investigating and have higher guidepost solutions to do their own analysis, even though their sexual ethics are completely out of step with Southern Baptist views, then you must be for abuse. That's been the assumption from the other side, the side Anderson Cooper seems to be on. And that is not the side, at least it's not the side that should solely be represented. There should be, if you're going to have balance, if you're a journalist, you should present both sides of this at the very least. And the, leg, the strength of argument and I think tradition and theology are going to be on the side, Southern Baptist theology, of the side opposite Anderson Cooper in this, but it's not even acknowledged that that side exists. Instead, the assumption is 
you have the executive committee shirking their responsibilities in favor of abuse somehow, allowing abusers to run free and rampant and covering it up. Isn't that horrible? They covered it up. That is what you're hearing. When you read that report and to read accounts of people who were brave enough to call in to the executive committee to report abuse, for them to be ignored. That's not a strong enough word. We didn't just ignore them. Sometimes we impugn their motives. Sometimes we attack them. The reason why I'm president of the Southern Baptist Convention is because our churches do not agree with that and have taken action to correct those things. Yes, that's right. When the abuse report came out from Guidepost that already contained a lot of publicly available information that the Houston Chronicle had covered, that already uh, talked about cases that were known and called into question, like the Jennifer Lyle situation. And it, it, let's just say it was, at best, it was sloppy. When that report came out, apparently Bart Barber was just angry about it or upset or you know disturbed. And he that's part of the reason he ran for the president of the Southern Baptist Convention was so he could put an end to this madness that the pastors who were against fundamentally changing the nature of the Southern Baptist Convention and making now the executive committee liable for predators in individual churches and having the goal now and the role of having to police these kinds of things rather than having the police be the ones, primary ones, uh, to investigate for the churches to call, etc. That whole thing, that whole argument that was given to us, which really started only 0.5 seconds ago, and before that, in hundreds of years, of uh, not even just Southern Baptist history, going before that, th this was not really a thought. But now it's push, push, push. We, we need to change the, the nature of the SBC so that the executive committee has this power, has this liability, uh, all of that. That, put, put that in your own category of what that is, the Me Too movement, let's say. Bart Barber looked at that whole thing and said, yes, those people, those people who are pushing all of this innovation, the, all these innovations, they're the ones in the right. They're the ones who aren't covering up abuse. They're the white hats. The black hats are the people, the pastors, who would uh, impugn the motives of those good-hearted people, those good-hearted Me Too activists. And... It's, again, not fairly representing what happened here. It, it's creating a scenario in which you think, if you're an outsider watching this, wow, there must be some really bad people in the Southern Baptist Convention. He uses the personal pronoun we, like the whole convention's kind of behind this. It's, it's at least characteristic of the convention uh, of covering up abuse. You, you get the impression that there's these horrible pastors that are mocking and making fun of uh, those who just care about abuse. And that's the moral play that you're seeing. It's not a moral play, which would... It's not a situation which would be accurately presented in which you have two sides, both caring about abuse, but both seeing uh, different ways of approaching that particular uh, topic. It, instead, what it is, is those with this innovative solution, this centralized solution, are the only ones that are allowed to gain the status of qualifying as caring individuals, as loving uh, people who just want to stop sexual abuse. That's... That's what you're getting from Bart Barber. He's parroting what Anderson Cooper already believes. He's not challenging any of this. He's not presenting any kind of di dilemma that uh, was the real debate that was actually happening. It's a fake debate that he promotes here. Uh, and he knows better. That's the thing. He knows better. Do you believe the 2020 election was stolen? No. 
you believe Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States? I do. Absolutely. I pray for him consistently as the president of the United States. I believe he was legitimately elected. Bart Barber told us that he doesn't believe the election was rigged. He does believe that Joe Biden was duly elected the president of the United States. That's a big deal. 60% of white evangelicals believe the election was stolen in 2020, and many, many Southern Baptists go to church every Sunday believing that. Southern Baptist pastors have been afraid to speak about that from the pulpit because they know lots of people oppose that in the pews. How many people, how many voters is, is Bart Barber in a position to influence? At least 70 million people identify as evangelical today. He can have a huge impact when it comes to who they vote for and why they vote for that candidate. Okay, now we're seeing, I think, what the real interest in this is the primary motivation for doing a piece like this. I don't believe they do it because let's just cover the Southern Baptist Convention and they have an abuse problem or something. They're looking at this more, I think, uh, because the Southern Baptist Convention, evangelicals in particular, pulled hard for Donald Trump. And if you want to try to create a scenario where someone like a Donald Trump never rises to power again, if you want to put a nail in that coffin, there's multiple avenues to it. One is you can severely hamper the efforts of evangelicals to get out the vote for Republicans uh, or conservatives. You can try to make it so evangelicals are influenced in another direction. And Bart Barber here is saying what the regime, uh, the, the people that would be more supportive of the current regime, what they believe. Bart Barber is carrying their water, water for them. Bart Barber is the leader of the largest denomination representing evangelicals in the United States, and he is agreeing with Anderson Cooper and the media and, uh, and the Biden administration and the Democrats and saying that, uh, no, 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 it was legitimate. Everything was good there. And this is at the point in which, for those who want to hear me say more about this, are going to have to go to the audio podcast or to Rumble, and I'll put links in the info section if you want to see more about this particular issue. Okay, so we've talked about the election 2020 on this podcast many times before, and I don't want to give you information that you've already heard. Uh, we've talked about the top counties, top 10 counties that uh, usually determine where the election is going to lie, uh, because if these, these are counties where you have a pretty significant uh, balance between Democrats and Republicans and whichever way the moderates go is where the county goes and which way the country goes. And we've talked about how uh, Trump won just almost every single one of those. I think it was like one he lost and how the despite this, somehow Biden gets the presidency. Biden gets more votes than Barack Obama even got. Uh, we talked about uh, I mean, we've talked about so much in this regard. Uh, precincts that had more people come to vote than are registered, things like that. Now, I want to, though, turn your attention to something that just came out recently. This is this is super big, guys. Super big. This is Rasmussen reports. Rasmussen. Now, the Rasmussen poll, of course, these are pollsters. That's what they do. This is their what they do for a living, right? And here's what they're saying about elections. And this is this is a long thread. And I'm, I'm going to see if I can put the link in the info section. It says this. Uh, the Connect... Election systems bombshell, a thread, election poll forecasting is, listen to this, election poll forecasting is rendered useless by election fraud. In other words, we can't even do our job. I can't give you a poll when it's rendered useless by election fraud. That's why we will continue to follow and report on the documented threats to fair and honest elections. Let's get started. So here's, this is October 7th. This wasn't that long ago. Monday, October 3rd, 2022, the New York Times decides to launch a hit piece on True the Vote, 
who uh, they say falsely accused an American company of hosting the data of 2 million election workers on a secret computer server in communist China. Uh and then you have less than 24 hours later, the L.A. County D.A. announced the Michigan arrest of the CEO of that very same company after an investigation for storing L.A. County worker data on servers in the People's Republic of China. Coincidentally, we also published our latest U.S. election integrity poll showing the issue began ranking at number five among all likely voters for the upcoming midterm elections with 84 percent concern, 61 percent very concerned. We also re-ran, uh, rerun our 2020 election cheating survey. The arrest of CEO Eugene Yu by the LADA triggers October 4th reminders of prior month reporting by uh, Kinokoa the Great, FBI conceals Chinese infiltration of U.S. election software. And new reporting by the Rights Group arrives on how true the vote previously reported their discovery of this Konek Chinese server connection to the FBI way back in January 2021. Uh, Kinokoa... Uh, the Great describes what happens this April when the FBI DC office finally gets the Kinoch, uh, Kinect file from their field office. The DC office doesn't target Kinect, it targets True the Vote. Why they would ever do that remains a mystery. Meanwhile, a humiliated New York Times reporter files his follow on article, no doubt after screaming all day at the intelligence community sources who set him and the paper up for such a swift propaganda catastrophe. Yesterday, Kinokoa the Great files a follow-on article. Kinect CEO Eugene Yu's connection to China's National People's Congress and Chinese telecom giants. And thus, Kinect CEO Eugene Yu is caught lying about storing the personal data of 2 million U.S. election workers in China. Legacy media goes totally silent. The CCP likely has had the access passwords to multiple U.S. election systems and devices for years. What to do now? Was the 2020 presidential election the most secure in American history? Arguably, it certainly was not. And votes counts could have been manipulated by our economic enemy, the Chinese Communist Party. Why? Proof? The Wisconsin legislature, for one, officially found voting systems online. The Connect. Chinese data hosting security issue was reported to the FBI by True the Vote in January 2021. The FBI ended up attacking True the Vote for identifying the issue, which here, one month from midterms, is entirely unresolved and subject embargoed by legacy media. Cornered by the Connect arrest, legacy media amps up their lie that the 2020 elections were the most secure in American history. They have no proof now that the Chinese Communist Party had no access to our 2020 election systems. Quite the opposite. So they're spraying their same old propaganda. Thus, some company screenshots are in order. All of this data about U.S. election operations during and after the 2020 elections was and still is hosted in the Chinese Communist, uh, in Communist China, under the benevolent and never watchful eyes of the CCP, who naturally only wants the best for America. And so they, they provide more. Um, man, <laughs> th this is just incredible that you have Rasmussen coming out. This is, and this is the Rasmussen Poll official Twitter account. It's blue check marked and everything saying, we can't do our job, guys. We can't do it. How are we supposed to predict elections? How are we supposed to poll people if you have, we're going to look like we're being inaccurate and we're not. This just came out October 7th. And this was what, right before, I think, or right, well, around the same, no, it was right before, I guess, Bart Barber did this interview. And uh, so, or, or at least uh, the interview was probably conducted beforehand, actually, but it, it aired after. So this is the kind of thing I can't say on YouTube, but this is the kind of thing that's happening. 
and it is a very real threat. And it, I've said this before, if you can't have honest elections, everything else doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Even abortion and stuff, it, it's not, I'm not saying those issues don't matter. I'm just saying that if you can't, how are you going to stop these things if you're not able to have a fair election? There's no way to stand against these things. So that's the mechanism we use to choose leaders. So uh, just put that in your back pocket. I'll try to remember to put the link in the info section for you if you want to read this for yourself. But this is from the Rasmussen Report, and it's confirming what we said two years ago on this particular podcast. I did not vote for President Trump in 2016, and that lays out my rationale for that pretty well. What was the evilness that you saw? The way he treated women that had been documented at that point. Uh, I thought that uh, a lot of the rhetoric about immigration was wrongful. A lot of Southern Baptists thought that the rhetoric about immigration was wrongful. Talking about legal immigration. Talking about legal immigration. You embrace it. I embrace it. I'm, I'm thankful for people who have immigrated. I live in Texas. I'm surrounded by people who are intermarried into our families. They make our community better. Correct me if I'm wrong. In 2020, you did vote for Donald Trump. Part of what changed is that um, the president advocated for some legislation on uh, sentencing reform, uh, something that really addressed some injustice that affected uh, minority communities. I was encouraged by the consistent pro-life support that the president gave. I didn't expect that. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. Barber did tell us what happened on January 6th. And Donald Trump's role in it has had a big impact on his opinion of the former president now. I, and I think a lot of Southern Baptists, would be thrilled to have the opportunity to support someone for leadership in our country who's strong on the values that matter to us, who can do that without putting the vice president's life in danger. You would be hard-pressed to vote for somebody who put his vice president's life in danger? Yes. Donald Trump did invite and incite and encourage a mob of people to march on the Capitol. I'll just say this, I want to be driven by the principles of Jesus Christ, and uh, that does not involve mob violence. I, I, don't, I don't support that. Anyone who does support that, uh, I'm less likely to vote for them because of their support for that. If Mike Pence ran in a primary, you would vote for him in a primary? There is nothing that would prevent me from voting for Mike Pence in a primary. We asked Barber what he thinks about the Christian nationalist rhetoric increasingly being used by some elected officials like Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. It stands contrary to 400 years of Baptist history and everything I believe about religious liberty. I'm opposed to the idea of Christian dominion, churchly dominion over the operations of government. Why do you object to that? Okay. Uh, I object to it because Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. I object to it because historically, every time it's been adopted, it wound up persecuting people like me. It doesn't stop at persecuting people who are not Christians. It eventually winds up persecuting people who are Christians for whom the flavor of their Christianity is different from that of the government. Support for the separation of church and state was a foundational principle for Baptists who faced religious persecution in England and America in the 1600s. 
Baptists split in 1845 over slavery, which is when the Southern Baptist Convention was founded. The SBC supported slavery and later segregation. On abortion, the SBC's opposition has hardened over the years. In 1971, they made exceptions in cases where there was, quote, the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. But in 1980, they narrowed that exception only to cases where pregnancy threatened the life of the mother. Bart Barber says he stands by that today. Our interest with abortion is not, it's not to police everybody's sex life. Uh, our interest with abortion is that we believe that's a human person who deserves to live. There was just a case recently, a 10-year-old girl who was raped, barred from having an abortion in Ohio, was able to obtain one in, in Indiana. I mean, this is a, a little girl who, she has a right to life, too. Sure. Even in that case, you think she should have the child? I do. She uh, should be forced to have the child? I, I think, um, I don't want that to sound like I don't have tremendous compassion for her and her circumstance. I wish we could put an end to 10-year-olds being raped. I'm, I'm trying to work against child sexual abuse because I think that's atrocious. But you don't see forcing a 10-year-old child to go to term with a, a baby that, from rape as abuse of a child? I see it as horrible. I see it as preferable to killing someone else. Not surprisingly, Barber and the SBC oppose same-sex marriage. We're committed to the idea of gender as a gift from God. We're committed to the idea that men and women ought to be united with one another in marriage. Do you still believe that gay people can be, should be converted out of being gay? I believe that sinners should be converted out of being sinners, and that applies to all of us. Can somebody be a good Christian, a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, and be gay or lesbian and married to a person of the same sex? No. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can a good Christian in good conscience vote for Donald Trump in 2024? Before we left, we asked Bart Barber one last time about how he'll vote. I'm not even going to speculate about that. Who are the other choices? Ahead of the election in 2016, you said who you were going to vote for. In 2020, you said who you voted for. Now you're not saying who you'd vote for. That's correct. Somebody seeing this is going to think, okay, well, that's, Why are you hedging that's, it now? that's political. It's not political calculation. The fact that in 2016, I could say something I was speaking only for myself. And now, um, you know, uh, 50,000 churches of people I love are represented by me when I speak. And so um, do I feel a sense of needing to be more wise and careful about things that I say now? Absolutely, I do. Have evangelicals sold their soul in order to support Donald Trump? First of all, I think we had to choose from the choices that were given to us. And that's, um, that's, that's an inescapable reality in our political system. But there's a lot of evangelical support for Donald Trump that goes beyond just somebody holding their nose and saying, well, I have these two choices, so I'm going to vote for this person. That there are, I'm telling you, there are also a lot of people who articulate what I've just said. I just think that under President Trump, they saw less backtracking on the things that were promised to them. I do think that Americans are hungry for strong leadership. I think that there's opportunity for strong leaders to emerge who give us better choices. So there you can see the Anderson Cooper's big question that he asks repeatedly is about Donald Trump. 
Are you going to support him again? What, what are evangelicals going to do? Can we somehow pour some, some cold water on this guy? Can we make sure that he doesn't make it to be in the White House again? It, it's interesting to me that despite even um, for those who listened on the audio and heard what I had to say about uh, the 2020 election, for those who see what happened during that particular election, there's still a, a nervousness there about what's going to happen in 2024. And I mean, there was a book I think that just came out I saw about Trump returning. I think it's called The Return. There's there's a lot of excitement that Trump could uh, get back in the White House. And there's a a bit of a nervousness there among uh, the elites. And so if you can get the president of the Southern Baptist Convention to come out against Donald Trump and signal to all his the, the people that are under him, that you should not vote for Donald Trump, then you know maybe that'll carry some weight. I think that's probably what's going on. But Bar- Barber brings up immigration as the reason. Legal immigration, apparently. Legal immigration. Donald Trump stood opposed to legal immigration. I don't even know where he gets some of these talking points. Do- Donald Trump repeatedly said, because I listen to a number of his speeches, not because I'm obsessed with Trump, just because I listen to the, what the president says sometimes. And I heard it enough over the last four years that we need people to come here legally. We can't. And and by the way, I will say this. This isn't Trump. This is me. But you can't have a legal immigration system that's either too easy or even if it's not easy, it has too many people coming in. There, there There is a human scale issue when you overwhelm communities and you sow seeds of mistrust that communities that have lived together for generations and they're going to let's say, deposit a, a group of people there who haven't uh, who haven't taken, ha- don't have those experiences, those shared memories, those uh, bonds uh, from marriages and business that uh, take a lot of time to form, and you just put them there, it's going to cause a problem. We're seeing that in Europe, and, and to some extent, we're seeing it in the United States. So even if it's done legally, uh, you still have concerns, but that's not that wasn't the issue with Trump's presidency. It was Trump trying to stop illegal immigration. And maybe maybe Bart Barber's talking about those seeking uh, some kind of an asylum from Middle Eastern countries that and Trump wanted them vetted, and if they couldn't be vetted, then he didn't want to let them in. I don't know, but it's so vague or it's so general that you can't really like specifically what policy is what I would want to know that Trump advocated because I don't know of any where he was against legal immigration. He was very much in favor of legal immigration. He was against illegal immigration, and he was against unvetted immigration. Uh, of course, Anderson Cooper repeats the often, oft-repeated you know, you know, <laughs> uh, things that are said about Southern Baptists, that Southern Baptists are very in favor of slavery, or were. They're very, they were very in favor of segregation, and that's, uh, that's the whole basis, basically, I guess. That's the if you peel back all the onion layers, when you get to the heart of it, the root of it, that's what the Southern Baptists are. And we've talked about that a little on this particular podcast, that that's a, a misunderstanding of even the way the Southern Baptist Convention was, was formed. Yes, sure. The issue of whether or not slavery was a sin in and of itself and slave people from slaveholding churches were able to serve as missionaries for the convention did play a part. But it, it, it was not the only reason. And it was more, to be honest with you, it was more of a symptom or an occasion for conflict rather than the cause of the conflict. The cause was a different reading of the Bible, a different uh, understanding of Christian ethics, and whether or not the rules of the convention itself should be followed or not by the Boston Mission Board. So this isn't 
it, to oversimplify it into one side was for slavery is doing the same thing that they're that they're both doing on this issue of abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. One side's for abuse. No, that's that's not uh, an accurate depiction. Uh, and and they do this though all the time. And it for someone who knows the history, who's read enough about it, it doesn't take that much. Uh, it's it's so frustrating because it's like it's just accepted. It's believed by the very president of the convention apparently. Uh, it would seem, at least. I, I hear it repeated often enough. Uh, it talks about, um, what else? Uh, homosexuality and abortion. And and it's interesting to me, I'm going to show you some reactions here in a minute, but this is where, you know, Bart Barber didn't cave on those things. And I, I thought to myself, yeah, but that's kind of like, I don't know, I, I think there's a different standard at play here. Like, in my mind, and probably in most of your minds, I would think that's like a super basic bar to meet like like you're not supposed that those are southern baptist views official southern baptist positions on these topics exist and if you were just to buck what the southern baptist convention says about these things it wouldn't like that's not something most people do they do it in more subversive ways if they're going to do it but it's uh it's kind of like a low bar to meet and it's my assumption would be that at the very least no matter who the president of the southern baptist convention is they're going to say orthodox things about homosexuality and abortion. They're going to be against abortion. They're going to be against um, practicing homosexuality. So for people to be, this is the interesting thing to me, for people, some people to be impressed that Bart Barber did that shows you how far we've fallen. That's what it shows you. It, to me, it's not a reflection of Bart Barber doing anything courageous or significantly um, brave. What it, what it says to me is how far we've lowered our expectations. And I say, it, it's not our, I shouldn't say our, because I'm not included in that. I haven't lowered my expectations. I'm not impressed by it. But apparently some people are. And some people who have more prominence in the convention on a more conservative side, they, have seem, they seem to think that that is a display of bucking the culture, bucking the, the world somehow. It's like good for Bart Barber or something. I don't get that. Like at the very least, if he's asked those questions, he should make those statements. And of course, it kept coming back to Trump. So for the media, this was very political. But I think that the reactions from people in the Southern Baptist Convention are, or, and some perhaps a few aren't in the Southern Baptist Convention here. I think most of them are. I, to me, this was the interesting part more so because we know that the media what they want to do. They want to show their controlled opposition, I think. They want to show that uh, Bar you should listen to Bart Barber. He agrees with us on some of these things. And if they can press him to even take more progressive stands on certain issues, they're going to do it. Um, of course, he can't. if he went beyond what he already said, if he started saying things to really soft-pedal homosexuality, and, I mean, Anderson Cooper is talking about same-sex weddings and things, then you would have a real problem. And I don't think Bart Barber believes that anyway. I mean, I think he, I, I take him at his word when he says that uh, he supports the Southern Baptist views on those things. But of course, that's been the third way tactic from the beginning is to uh, try to look at very obvious, at least now they're very obvious uh, position, views and positions that are outside the scope of orthodoxy and say we don't agree with those but yet can't we just look at immigration can't we just look at some of these uh policies concerning policing and race and monuments and just find something else the environment 
uh, war, try to find another issue that you can then say, well, but we're, look at us. We're not your stereotypical evangelicals. We actually have nuance. We actually do think that there's a point to be made, and we, we transcend the left-right divide because we're followers of Jesus, right? That's been the thing. We've talked about it many times. Here is some of the reactions, though, uh, from rank and file, or not, they're not rank and file. These are <laughs> These are tweets that most of them picked up some traction, or they are people who are influential in the SBC. So we'll start here uh, with Jimmy uh, Scroggins. You've heard Will McCraney talk about Jimmy Scroggins before, uh, because a few years ago, he had published a book with LifeWave, and at the same time, gave, uh, I guess it was about a million dollars, something like that, to Tom Rainer, who was the outgoing LifeWay, uh, I guess, I don't know what the title they use is, but the CEO or the, the leader of Life, whatever. And um, so there's a conflict of interest issue, apparently. But Jimmy Scroggins, I would say, part of the SBC elites, that, that whole network, uh, pastor of, 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 of a church, but also has a few books published with LifeWay. Um, he is on a visiting professor at multiple seminaries, including Southeastern and Southern. He's uh, is serving on the board of trustees for LifeWay. At least he was. I think he still is. But so, so here's his reaction. Just watch Bart Barber interview on 60 Minutes. In my opinion, Bart represented our churches articulately, clearly, helpfully, empathetically, and most important, biblically. Yes. So very positive about what you just heard. Uh, next, we have Luke Stamps. Now, Luke teaches at Oklahoma Baptist University. He is the chair of uh, religion there. And uh, he he went to Southeastern, actually, so where I went. I It's funny, because I went there, I, I immediately have a suspicion when I'm like, oh, someone, man, if they went through what I went through, did you get out okay? <laughs> Is everything all right? Uh, but anyway, so Luke Stamps, I would say, yeah, part of that SBC, more elite network, if you're teaching at Oklahoma Baptist University. And here's what he says. Christian nationalism stands opposed to 400 years of Baptist history and everything I believe about religious liberty. I object to it because Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world. Now, this is one of the things, and he references Bart Barber on 60 Minutes. It's one of the things, though, in this particular presentation that was, I've said it before about this Christian nationalism stuff, is you've got to, you can't just make general statements. You've got to define it. And the fact that Bart Barber doesn't define it, Anderson Cooper, they just assume we know what we're talking about. It's in the context of Trump and the election of 2020 and extremists. And that's, you're supposed to just know from those few clues what Christian nationalism is. And th these kind of takes are kind of worthless if there is no actual definition to it. If you don't know what you're talking, if all you mean is we should have Christian principles displayed in government or that part of uh, being in America means that there is a respect for Christianity and every citizen should at least acknowledge that to some extent, or like th those are competing versions of what Christian nationalism is. And then you could have all the way to this hypothetical person who thinks that everyone must be converted by the sword or something. But I don't even know who that person is, but, uh, but you know, Luke Stamps, very adamant. He's, you know, an educated person, right? He's teaching uh, future seminarians and or future uh, pastors and, uh, and, you know, Southern Baptist youth are going there to get an education. He's teaching people who are going to be the next generation and telling them, 
well, I don't know what he's telling them, but he's he's certainly telling them that Christian nationalism is not an option because it stands, again, opposed to 400 years of Baptist history, uh, according to Bart Barber, and Bart Barber's correct on this point. And uh, so, you know, what what is it that is uniquely Baptist th- that would stand against Christian nationalism? And the only thing I can think of, here's just my take on this whole thing. What Bart Barber is trying to say, and what you often hear people on the left in the Southern Baptist Convention try to say is that Baptists are in the same, uh, they, they are persecuted people. They are, uh, they are the Roger Williamses kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. We have particular convictions, even though Roger Williams, you're not really, Baptist, Southern Baptists aren't in that lineage, but they try to claim it. So they, they try to claim, though, that the unique um, contribution they've made to public theology is this separation of church and state position that is defined by the absence of a state church. And so, and for the purpose of avoiding or evading, uh, avoiding really persecution of some kind that could come from the combination of civil magistrate power and the power of the ecclesia. So that's what they will claim. And there's, there is a bit of truth to this in the sense that yes, Baptists had been persecuted. You look even in the history of this country and see what happened in uh, particular states like Virginia, where it was Anglican, and see what they did to Baptists. It was not not that great. <laughs> Some of my forefathers are in that. Uh, so it, it, they were persecuted, and uh, because of that, they had a suspicion for the power of the state when it was combined with the, uh, the official power of an ecclesiastical branch. And so they didn't want a denomination to hold sway. That doesn't mean in any—here's the separation I want to make. That doesn't mean— in any way, shape, or form, that they were opposed to the influence of religion in the government. Christian principles, Christian morality, Christian ethics, uh, that didn't mean that they weren't opposed to that. They would have assumed, everyone pretty much would have assumed at the time of the founding, even and up you know, into the federal period, that the Christianity, uh, some kind of Christian morality, needed to guide the government. What other kind of morality are you going to get? So it was more just don't create a relationship in which certain uh, denominations are, and they may have used the term religion at that point to describe this, but that they would be in the position of holding some official power in which they could persecute competitors. That is the issue. And they act like that particular issue, for some odd reason, is now put into question because of Christian nationalism, as if Christian nationalists and the people calling themselves that, uh, like Stephen Wolf just came out with a book. It's sitting on my desk. I haven't read it yet. The Case for Christian Nationalism. Stephen Wolf. Does Stephen Wolf want to go jail people, persecute people, have an official state church supported by taxpayer dollars uh, that engages in that kind of activity? I doubt it. No, I, I, you know, I can pretty much say no, no. Um, but that's the boogeyman that's out there. That's the boogeyman the media wants you to believe is out there. And these guys are just playing into it. That's what's annoying about it. So you have Bart Barber playing into it. Luke Stamps playing into it here. But he's positive on the Bart Barber interview. You have Griffin um, Goolidge here. And this is what uh, he said about it. No matter how gracious, how nuanced, how faithful, or how biblical, how consistent with our historic theology and practice, Bart Barber is on 60 Minutes. He is going to get killed for it on Twitter. That's how it is now. Let's not get into the scum. Let's follow his example. Now, if you remember from this podcast, we've talked about the fact that Griffin Gulich was the one behind both 
with this last Southern Baptist convention, or, or he seemed to be the first one saying that there was this plan by CBN to go and move the, uh, move the stage to vote early on the presidential election, thereby giving it to Tom Askell. And this was a horrible thing. It was retweeted by all these big wigs in the Southern Baptist Convention. I can't believe CBN would do that. Uh, he was the one that year before that was the first to go out there and trot out this allegation that Mike Stone had talked to a survivor and was basically rude, I guess. And that, you know, this uh, Hannah Kate was crying and this whole thing. Griffin, he shows up in these spots, these weird, these unusual spots. And he was the uh, in Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I think he was like was part of the media coordination or something. He worked there. I don't remember exactly what he did. I think he's a pastor now. But uh, this is his his take on this, uh, that, you know, Twitter's going to kill Bart Barber for this. Uh, I mean, and he was great. He was just nuanced and faithful. And of course he wasn't nuanced. <laughs> biblical. You know, this is, keeps coming up. He was biblical. Where was he biblical? I didn't, he does he wasn't even quoting Bible verses. I don't know what they're talking about, but it's, uh, it's the narrative. And uh, the funny thing about this is Griffin Gulich is totally wrong. He wasn't killed for it on Twitter. That's the interesting thing. I was looking all over Twitter. I was trying to find, okay, that was a terrible interview. Did anyone on the right say anything? And it's like Tom Buck. And if you want to consider Denny Burke on the right, I guess, but I don't know if I would consider him that, but okay. Denny Burke and Tom, but that's it. That's it. There there's as far as instit- people with more clout in the convention, pastors, people with a little more institutional power, Tom Buck, G3, Denny Burke, South uh, Southern Baptist theological seminary. I mean, you have like you know, Protestia saying some stuff, but I mean, it's like not getting traction much. It's not, it's not making the same kind of waves. So anyway, you have Saint uh, PJ, uh, that's his Twitter name, Saint. So it's PJ uh, Tobian. And we've talked about him too. He's, he's woke. We'll put it that way. And he says a decent job by Saint Bart Barber, president of Greer, uh, of Great Commission Baptists. So he won't use the term Southern Baptist. On 60 Minutes, I wish they would publish the whole interview in a separate link to get the full context and the whole answer to some of these loaded questions. So, yes, he's positive about Bart Barber. Uh, we have uh, Daniel Patterson. He used to have a prominent position in the ERLC. Uh, he's written for them. Uh, he's a pastor. So, uh, yeah, that, because of the ERLC connection, I would say part of the, the Southern Baptist uh, machine. And here's what he says. This was a God-honoring masterclass interview from Bart Barber tonight in 60 Minutes. It's impressive on its own, but all the more when you understand what goes on into making uh, of a segment like this. I'm speaking from experience here. Uh, and it's just, it goes on. Uh, you have uh, Daniel Dickard. And Daniel Dickard is, uh, some of you might not have heard of him. He is um, also a pastor and uh he is the one that, I guess, out. He, he beat Vody Bacham by not a large percentage, but he did beat Vody Bacham last year uh, in being the organizer for the Pastors Conference next year at the Southern Baptist Convention. So, yes, because of that, part of the SBC machine uh, to some extent. He said, I enjoyed listening to Bart Barber's interview on 60 Minutes, and I thought he represented Southern Baptists well. So, this is. And, and you didn't see a lot more. It, it's interesting. The guy goes on 60 Minutes, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and there's hardly any people of any prominence weighing in. The people who do, though, on, I would say, the left are really positive. Now, you have, here's someone from outside, I think, evangelicalism just saying she weighed in. This is of someone of no account. 
as far as their position uh, is concerned. They just her tweet got a lot of traction. Uh, Pastor uh, Bart Barber and president of the Southern Baptist Convention just said if your 10-year-old baby girl was raped and became pregnant, then she would be forced to have a baby. Picture your 10-year-old fourth grade daughter not only raped, but forced to give birth. November is coming. And so you can't, I just wanted to show this to say, you can't, please, you cannot satisfy the left. They are never impressed by your nuance, by your, they're going to keep pushing you like Anderson Cooper did. All right. So immigration. All right. So you're against Trump. Okay, now tell me what you think about homosexuality and abortion. They're going to keep it. They're not impressed by that. They may be surprised a little bit. Oh, I didn't know he was with us on these things. Good. Now let's press him on other stuff. You can't appease these people. You can't attract them uh, to your church. Once they find out your other positions, if they're consistently on the left, then they're not going to, it doesn't make them endear them to you. Uh, all right, so Tom, here, here's the right side more so of the aisle. Tom Buck, I listened to this interview with Bart Barber. Overall, I think Bart did an excellent job, particularly about the issues of homosexuality and abortion. He took a bold and biblical stand on abortion, and I commend him for that. He also was bold on, on his answers about homosexuality. Bart was asked, can someone be a good Christian, a member of the SBC, and married to a person of the same sex? And of course, by, I, I should stop right there and say, look, that's not about same-sex attraction. This is this is like a full-on this activity you know, marriage, profaning marriage. And this is what Tom Buck tweets. Bart Barber boldly said, boldly said, no. I'm thankful for this and asked Bart Barber to address the fact that FBC Orlando is practicing this and the North American Mission Board is partnering with them to plant churches. So good for Tom. You know, he, he's at least, but I, this, you know what it seems like? It seems like there's that that political kind of maneuver here to um, try to, you know, show Bart Barber some good faith here that Look, I think you did a good job. I think the stand you took is, is good. Now, go after these people that are inconsistent with what you just said you believed and what the Southern Baptist Convention believes, but yet we're partnering with them. Go after them. And, and that may be the angle that, he, that he's doing. That's what it seems like, at least. But um, these are his words are that overall he thinks he did an excellent job. And this is what I don't understand, because if we just if you watch the interview, did you really think Barbara did an excellent job? That's what I don't quite get. And... It, it's a universal praise from people with any standing in the SBC, it seems, uh, for those who have chimed in. Denny Burke, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Bart Barber sat for an interview with Anderson Cooper. You can watch or read the transcript. Really well done. Grateful for how Dr. Barber represented Southern Baptists. So Denny Burke, um, really grateful for that. So th this is what you have uh, going on uh, as far as the reactions that uh, I am aware of in the uh, on the interwebs, as they say. And... It doesn't give me a lot of hope for the Southern Baptist Convention, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, what should I expect from this? It's been so long that I've been looking at these things over the last couple of years that it doesn't surprise me. But it, it did surprise me a little that there weren't more reactions to it since it was national television. But it, it uh, just highlights, I think, something that I've come to believe over the course of years now and really have believed strongly for the last year and a half. And that is that the Southern Baptist Convention, I just don't see how you really recover. When that's your president, so out of step with the rank and file SBC uh, pew sitters that are paying his salary, pay, or not his salary, but uh, sorry, paying the uh, expenses of the denomination. Um, when, you, when you don't have an effective resistance against this kind of thing, uh, when it's maybe it's just so baked in the cake now people don't feel the need if you're even conservative and have standing why you know why go out there and even bother why get in why 
publicly post reviews on something like this. They're just going to do it anyway. It's not going to give you anything but grief from the other side. You know, it could be that. I don't know. But uh, I don't see effective pushback at all on these things. And there does need to be. Um, it, it's it, What it probably shows is that the bar is very low. What would cause an outrage? That's what I want to know. What would cause people to be upset enough to uh, even those who are more in leadership in the convention on the more conservative side, what would cause them to get up in arms? I guess Bart would probably have to go out there or the president of the SBC and say something like, I don't believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman alone. You know, that would do it, I guess. But you, I think we're a ways, I'm not saying that's never going to happen, but I think we're a ways from that. It, it there's, there's an attempt to keep trying to kind of push the third way of some kind. And once the third way goes down, I mean, that's that, how the Hegelian dialectic works. Then you can then, that's the new norm. That's the new uh, right side of the Overton window. And now you can advance more. And and they haven't been able to do that quite with the people. Uh, and I, I should say, I'm not saying that Bart Barber in particular or anyone in particular. I'm just saying as a general, you know, kind of zoom out, look at it from a bird's eye view. That's a general tendency. That's how it operates. You know, Bart, that may be his conviction. I, I think it is that marriage is solely between a man and a woman. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that the way it often works over time is it's incremental. That's how progressivism works. It's insidious, it's subversive, and it's not something that they've been able to shove down the throats. The people who are believe do believe that the SBC and evangelicals need to really not just moderate, but uh, liberalize their views on these topics. They haven't been able to get the rank and file to accept something like that. That's a hard pill to swallow in a very short period of time. I mean, it's only been seven years since 2015 and Obergefell decision. You know, you it's, <laughs> I know things move fast today, but that is a very monumental thing to change very quickly. I think though, I think that in 20 years, that's probably, it's going to be different. I do think that, that there will come a time that kind of thing is very possible to overtly state that, you know, marriage, we need to be inclusive on it. And the Southern Baptists, if trends continue as they are, will be in the same place that many of these other mainline denominations are uh, on the issue. It's going to take time, though. It's going to take a lot of pushing. It's going to take uh, just a lot. And um, the denomination will probably be significantly smaller by the time they're able to do something like that, because there are some people with actual convictions who are paying the bills, who are sitting in the pews. And uh, but on these other topics of immigration, the integrity of the election, on uh, whether or not someone should vote for President Donald Trump, uh, on whether <laughs> on on whether those who oppose the changing the very nature of the polity of the Southern Baptist Convention are in advocates for abuse somehow or cover it up. You know, these are topics, these are situations where somehow now it is acceptable. You can just kind of make the assumptions that the left makes and still get praise from people who are on the right. And that's what's interesting to me. The third way is no longer the third way. That's what's happening. Can you see that? The third way is no longer... What, what I talked about three, four years ago, three years ago, and, and this third way that was happening, and people were starting to figure it out. They're, they're, Wait a minute, my pastor sounds different. What's going on? He went to this T4G conference, and he came back, and this is what he's saying. And and, and, and there was a lot of uh, just confusion. The dust hadn't settled. And I started explaining, well, there's a third way. I, I taught, saw it in seminary. This is what Tim Keller is advocating. And people were thinking, oh, my goodness, this is exactly what I'm hearing from the pulpit of my church. Uh, we need to do something. 
And and the third way was pretty classic, like abortion and homosexuality, wrong. And then we can alleviate poverty through socialism, some kind of social active mechanism of some kind, redistribution scheme. We can uh, immigration policy needs to be a lot looser. We need to make sure that we're letting all these refugees in, even if they're unvetted. We need to make sure that uh, I don't know, we're caring for the environment somehow, and that means government action and in in particular ways. And so th- you had all these things that they could try to use to bolster their credentials of being, I am nuanced. I am authoritative. That now, that position though, that third way that was being implemented at that time, that's now seen as more, it's it's more to the right. What It was seen as a, a very leftist move. I still see it that way. It was a leftist move to try to get Christians to move on these other issues because you know they can't move on abortion. That's kind of, so let's try to make, uh, let's let's make 11 things, abortion issues, life issues. Abortion's one of them, and then smoking's one of them, and nuclear proliferation, and all these other things are uh, racial justice, all life issues. And and so we can work on it this way. We can kind of till that soil, and then eventually we're going to get some Democrat voters here. That's what it seemed like the political play was. And now that political play just doesn't seem as radical, does it? And Because Bar- Bart Barber's advocating it in this particular interview, and... Eh, Ho-hum. <laughs> so, um, man, w- things are, are progressing. I don't know what it all means. I really don't. And I'd be curious to hear uh, your comments in the info section. There's lots more we need to get to. There's, I got a whole list of things uh, to talk about, but uh, time is not on my side today. So um, I appreciate uh, everyone's patience with me as I attempt to uh, get some uh, more information out there. And uh, p- please pray for me this week. I, I have a lot to do. I got to write a number of things. Um, I, I need to start writing another book and I need to, actually two books, and I really need to um, get ready for speaking in, in fact, I, I should plug this. I am going to be in Indiana next week and uh, you can come see me if you want. There's a place to RSVP if uh, you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> or you can just show up. I wouldn't recommend it. They haven't given, the organizers haven't given me authorization to say you can just show up, but uh if you do, the problem would probably be there There might not be room for you. So you, you should probably let them know. But uh, go to worldviewconversation.com if you're interested and you're in Indiana. And go to Syracuse, let's see, Syracuse, Indiana, and Kendallville, Indiana. And, uh, man, in eight days, I'll, I will be in uh, Kendallville. And then uh, ten days in Syracuse, and the RSVPs are right there. So I uh, look forward to seeing you. But i got to write some stuff for uh, just prepare a little bit for that. So um, had a lot going on. So I appreciate your prayers and uh, just thank you for the continued support and um, more coming. God bless. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.